There's actually been some very good modeling that has been done in the past that has generally said that if you deliver half of the vaccine to the target population and half of the vaccine to randomly throughout the population, that is actually more efficient in reaching herd immunity. Welcome to the Rain Insights podcast on COVID-19. I'm Emily Donahue. Not surprisingly, there have been some bumps in the road regarding early coronavirus vaccines. From logistical issues to communication, states in the U.S. and countries around the world will have to adjust their efforts to get enough vaccines to the right people. In this podcast, RAIN founder David Lawrence speaks to doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for context and guidance on the vaccine rollouts. Friend Bill, thank you again for uh, joining us. Uh, want to lead off with uh, number one, uh, the question about the mutation of the virus and a new strain which is appearing now around the world. Um, what can you share with us, and what can people be thinking about? Well, I can start, Bill. The remember, this is an RNA virus. And it is well known that this and other RNA viruses, the coronavirus, uh, do have very poor proofreading. And therefore, every single strain will make uh, uh, reading errors, and that creates a mutant. Now, when the, the RNA is one of the uh, nucleic acids is made an error, then you can change the one amino acid and it so happens this particular mutant changed one amino acid in the spike protein that rendered it more uh, able to bind more tightly to ACE2 receptors. And as a consequence, it is able to infect others more readily. So it's more transmittable. This was to be expected. And the problem, because there has not been good infection control, and many people have not been wearing masks and have not been distancing themselves, this uh, uh, would be it'd be called a gain-of-function mutation. In other words, this virus is more efficient. And if you uh, don't block the spread, it will take over because it, it will infect more people than the other strains. It will become dominant. So that's what's happened. And um, it's... It was totally predictable that it was in the U.S. And it's been found once we look for it, it is in the U.S. The problem is in order to identify it, you have to do full genome sequencing. That is, you sequence the entire virus. The U.S. has not been doing that. Great Britain has. And that's how they detected it and picked it up so quickly. We're now doing some genomic uh, testing, but not a lot. So it's highly likely it's all over the United States. And as long as Americans decide not to wear masks, not to distance, not to stay away of closed spaces, this virus will take over and become the dominant strain here as well. And so along those lines, uh, the, the IHME, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at University of Washington, uh, they've been putting out models that the, the magnitude of their models have not been sp- you know, spot on, but their timing has been pretty good. They're, they say that they believe that the this current peak will 
will peak out over the next week or so. But unfortunately, their model doesn't account for the effect of this new South African UK strain. So it's a little bit unclear how that's going to how it's going to play into it. Their peak was based on following what happens after the 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 mixing of that happens over the course of the holidays when people are just getting together and they felt like it would start coming down. But now we're getting to a point where in the in the US we have roughly 22 million people who have been infected. The the CDC has said that they believe it's 8 to 1 uh infection that are reported versus those that are, are infections not reported to those that are reported. So if you do the simple math on that, that comes out to something over 170 million that are that have been ex, at least exposed to the virus. Um, we don't know how some of these asymptomatic exposures, how well they're going to do on manufacturing a, a good uh, internal antibody response to that. But Still, at that point, now we're getting pretty close to 50% of the population. We've had 6 million people immunized uh, as, of, as of this morning. That was the latest number that I saw. Uh, so we're getting somewhere on the order of you know, 55% or so of the population that has either been immunized or is uh, uh, immune from natural immunity. So you know, we don't know. We're only going to know where herd immunity is retrospectively. We, we At this point, there's no way we're going to be able to predict it. The predictions have been all over the lot. So, but, but still, most people think by at least 70% that we're going to at least see some effect of, of herd immunity. Uh, I don't know, Fred, what, what do you think on that? But Yeah, um, yeah, yeah uh, Bill, Bill, you're correct. And there, there are several conditions that um, actually will uh, impact when we achieve enough immune enough immune individuals that the pandemic will stop that we will the epidemic will be stopped and the r sub zero the r sub not is one of those key factors the more readily a virus is able to spread in other words the r sub not is higher if it infects three people rather than one person or 1.5 people you have to have higher percentage coverage so you might have to go up to 80%. The second uh, key element is the speed with which we vaccinate. If we are slow in our vaccination, the, vi- the vaccine is going to have a less of an impact and will take longer and take more, a higher percent again, to actually uh, stop the epidemic. So these, and the third thing is the efficacy, how, what percentage are protected. Now that's been very good for the Madeira and for the Pfizer. Uh, And 90% that when you have a higher efficacy, you don't have to uh, vaccinate as many people. So all those factors come in. They're so variable that the prediction is anywhere from 60 to 90% will need to be uh, immune before it stops. So let me let me unpack because I think you guys have made some very important points. Number one, Fred, you've indicated that this is not a uh, a static virus. It has mutated and it almost basically it has mutated and we now have a strain that is capable of accelerating the contagions and spreading. Bill, my takeaway here is from your back of the envelope math, about half the people in the United States have already been exposed and, you know, potentially um, 
may have the immunities, maybe. And Fred, the third point here is that the rate of vaccination and the need for, we'll call it herd immunity, whether it comes from the vaccine or through people contracting it and, and, and recovering, this has to be accelerated. And so maybe we get your perspective because a lot of questions, and, and I think fairly so, are being raised by people and by many of our clients about the availability of the vaccine and for whom it will be available. And this very much feels like a state-by-state sort of hodgepodge. Not a great deal of transparency. How do people find out when they might be able to acquire the vaccine? What, Where should they be looking? And obviously the CDC is not the arbiter here. So what should be, what should people be doing to understand whether or not they can receive the vaccine? And if so, when and where? We are in a federal system. So it's not the, the role of the federal government was kind of the interstate part of that, which is getting the vaccines to the state. And the federal government has been doing that at a at a reasonable rate, given the given the availability of the vaccine, you know, as they've distributed somewhere on the order of 20 million courses of vaccine. Now, um, you know, they had said it'd be 20 million by the end of the month. Well, by the end of the month, they were around around 15 to 16 million. Um, now, a week into 2021, there's somewhere around 20 million, and that is that is accelerating. But all the federal government's role is essentially is to deliver it to the states, and then the states have to decide what to do with it from there. And so, David, you're exactly right. We've got 50 states plus territories and and DC, um, and we've got 50 different approaches to doing it. Most states are following the prioritization scheme that CDC uh, and the and ASIP, the the advisory Council, advisory committee on immunization practices, uh, recommended. But not all. Specifically, New York is one of the big ones that is taking a slightly different approach. California is taking a slightly different approach. Um, but then it's the actual mechanics of getting it into people's arms, and it's it is all over the lot from health local health departments having a role to local health systems having a role, and they each have their own. Um, they have, they have their own political drivers, health departments very much oriented towards uh, less served populations, uh, health systems very much oriented towards taking care of their health care providers. And that leaves people not associated with any of those. Well, where do I get my vaccine? I, do, I get, do I go to the health department? The health system's not doing it. This is my local doc. Well, the local docs in most locations have not yet been able to access uh, vaccine supplies. So it, it is, it's that last, if we want to call it the last mile um, of getting the vaccines to people. And then, and then importantly, figuring out how to get people to the vaccines. How do people know when they are ready to get, to get a vaccine? Um, so that's what's slowing. That's what's slowing things down. Uh, the hope is that the vaccine supplies are getting out there, but will we have the systems in place to get them into people's arms? All right, Bill, that was a really excellent summary of the issues. And uh, the one problem is because our investment in public health infrastructure has been so poor over the last two decades that they really are not in a position to administer large volumes of vaccine. Uh, So that's been a real problem. The health systems themselves are for, for in general, are more efficient at administering vaccines and are trying to manage their patient populations. 
But if you aren't part of a health system, uh, you may have difficulties. And I think what they're going to turn to, I've heard, particularly with the Madeira, which doesn't take as a stringent uh, minus 80 degree storage, is they are going to allow the CVS, Walgreens, and some of the grocery store pharmacies to actually administer the vaccines. That has worked for influenza vaccine in the past. It has worked for the pneumococcal, the pneumonia vaccine. So I think that that may be able to fill in the holes. Um, but then the question of priorities about who is eligible and who is not. I think that the problem with that is it's in principle, it sounds great. But as Bill and I were talking about, it gets so complicated that it actually creates delays because there is vaccine present, but then the people in the criteria they're supposed to get it now aren't available to get the vaccine or can't get there. And so the vaccine goes to waste. So I think we have to loosen up the criteria a little bit with the goal of utilizing all the vaccine is delivered as quickly as possible. And, and along those lines, there's actually been some very good modeling that has been done in the past on that. That is generally said that if you deliver half of the vaccine to the uh, target population and half of the vaccine to randomly throughout the population, then that, acts, that is actually more efficient um, in reaching herd immunity than it is if you just, just strictly stick to your targeted population. But Nobody's doing that unless they're falling into that approach because they want to use up the vaccine they have. So they're just they're saying you all come. Yeah. One of the things that Bill and I were talking about before is that really you have to use manufacturing principles actually proposed by a number of manufacturers where you actually do value stream mapping. You look at the flow, the workflows, the timing and then you uh, eliminate all wasteful steps. And one of the problems is when you have long lists of criteria, that creates a bottleneck. That creates a point of delay. And that's causing problems as far as distribution or actually people getting the vaccine, getting people there. Also, in, when possible, appointments are by far the best way because you can, if you get the appointments correct, each and nobody will have to wait in long lines and they, all the vaccine will be administered quickly and efficiently with an appointment schedule. We saw this in terms of how aid was delivered post-Katrina, but we have some incredible companies in the United States that understand process flow, operations flow, just-in-time inventory, uh, and the ability to compile the data of what is needed and where it's needed. And what I'm hearing you say is that rather than try to manage this through the seats, seats of government and possibly with through a political prism, to get this out to the Walgreens, the CVSs, the Walmarts, the Costcos. The big boxes. The right. big boxes that are both have understand how to maintain inventory, delivery processes. We have you know, obviously great delivery companies and Amazon and FedEx and UPS, that really this needs to be a joint private and public sector collaboration. And that is what got us to this point of getting a vaccine in record time with record efficacy. And now a time to deploy similar resources in the vaccination and getting to the point of herd immunity. 
I was I actually was interviewed yesterday on this, and the the thrust of the of the question was, should government be blamed for botching this to this point? And my answer was no. No, it's I don't don't call it botched at this point. It's slow right now. But you've got to remember that that government over the and primarily now I'm speaking local governments, not the federal government, because the the distri the distribution to the states is going reasonably well. It's the distribution. It's that last mile problem that we're having right now. But you've got to remember that over the rest of this, the earlier part of this year, the local health departments have been so focused on testing getting testing done. Everybody's demanding testing. They had did not have, because of the funding shortage that Fred mentioned, they didn't have the resources to focus on two major issues at once. Well, now they're having to focus and, and are being given money to address the issues that are coming up with the last mile distribution of vaccine. I wish that had been done you know, three months ago, but now they're, they're doing it now. I want to thank you both again for your insights and your time. The world has suffered greatly over the last year now, and we had this great vaccine, and what I'm hearing you say is people should continue to exercise smart medical precautions until they get the vaccine, and maybe even afterwards, Fred. Uh, Absolutely, yes, okay. yes. Fred and right, David, actually, too. that is a foreshadowing of maybe of possibly our discussion next week is something I think will be very used to, useful to talk about is, okay, I've had the vaccine. Now what? What do I do? Yes. Right. Yes. That is our topic be... next week. So I want to thank you both for your continued okay. public service and um, continue to help a wide range of communities and most importantly, sh sharing those insights with us. So thank you. Have a good, safe weekend. Thanks, David. Thank you, David. Take care. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. You can sign up for our coronavirus solution to get daily critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered to your inbox. Visit us at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.